Good morning, <laughs> Dr. O'Sullivan sort of sealed our fate predicting a late arriving crowd this morning, which is a little bit later than usual, but welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds for February 11th, 2015. Um, we're into February and we have a full schedule. Thankfully, Grand Rounds, after some snow switching around, we did uh, have uh, Dr. Sandlot move into next week for her sleep talk on adolescence. Dr. Linda Grant is coming from Boston. Uh, she had been postponed by one of the storms at the end of January to talk on um, school health and inter interface with school nurses on the uh, on the 25th. And Dr. O'Sullivan stepped up just as, um, <clears throat> as uh, uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Brendan, not Brendan. Who's, who spoke, who stepped up uh, two weeks ago for Dr. us? Dr. Nyan for us. So Dr. O'Sullivan is also going to be speaking at the uh, Dartmouth 25th anniversary Dartmouth Pediatric Conference at Mount Washington Resort, March uh, 4th through 6th. Yeah, my dates are... 5th through 7th. Thank you, 5th through 7th. <laughs> that weekend, first weekend of March, a really stellar program. Perry Class is going to join us. Uh, also be here for Grand Rounds the, the, uh, the Monday, the, the Wednesday before that, the 4th of March, right, Kathy? Yes. And uh, coming from NYU, she, where she's doing journalism. We also have uh, the Flying Congeni Brothers, my friends from Akron, who are infectious disease and uh, sports medicine. And Dr. O'Sullivan will be a great conference, the 25th. And we probably Probably still have room, but we're well over 100 uh, registrants already. Uh, and of course, some uh, local speakers also, in addition to Dr. O'Sullivan. I'm pleased to introduce Dr. Brian O'Sullivan, who um, I will take credit for my first recruit uh, as chair, always, and a successful one at that. Um, he is a Dartmouth person through and through after completing his undergraduate and medical degrees here uh, some time ago, I won't embarrass <laughs> you with the dates, completed a fellowship in medical ethics at the Harvard School of Public Health while he was at the University of Massachusetts. He trained in Philadelphia after medical school at St. Christopher's Hospital, both as a resident and chief resident and then a fellow in pediatric pulmonology before launching a long and successful career where he rose to the rank of professor of pediatrics at the University of Massachusetts Medical School and was their vice provost for research, chairing the institutional review board and also having a leading role in uh, securing a clinical translation science the Clinical Translational Science Award, a CTSA award like our Synergy. So a, uh, a, a scholar, researcher, an ethicist, a pediatric pulmonologist, and a professor of pediatrics here at the Geisel School of Medicine, uh, Dr. O'Sullivan, take it away. Thank you. Just, uh, okay, great. Is this loud enough? Can you hear me? Okay, okay, great. Thank you. Um, yeah, so I'm a pediatric pulmonologist, uh, and I'll say I kind of dabble in ethics. I was fortunate enough to take a year's clinical, uh, sorry, a year's uh, fellowship at Harvard School of Public Health um, with... Ah, okay. Oh, cool. Um, so um, I, I got interested in talking about uh, some of the ethical issues we all run into, and Big pharma, unfortunately, is a big problem, and I'm not sure there's an easy answer to any of this, but I wanted to go over some of the issues that I have to deal with. I do have disclosure. Uh, I'm going to rail against pharmaceuticals, but I have to admit I've taken some money uh, from Vertex, so I'll say that right up front, and I'll get back to actually some of the 
badness of this. Um, I've also taken some money, not, not taken money, but I've served for the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation and funded research. That's a little bit of a different thing. They're not a for-profit, so I think that's a little less uh, dirty. But I like to start grand rounds with or any talk with a quiz, so we're all kind of on the same place. So first question, are pharmaceutical companies for-profit entities or charitable foundations? <laughs> yeah, keep that in mind as we go through this, okay? You're laughing, but it's not funny. Um, and do the CEOs of pharmaceutical companies have a greater fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders or to patients? The sad answer is the one you know, and you kind of giggled initially, but it, when you stop and think about it, it's actually not funny. Um, and how do we know this? Well, here's something from my CF world. Um, in 2012, the FDA approved a new CF drug. This is a breakthrough. It actually treats the basic defects, something we've never done before. This is, was paradigm shifting. So, of course, this made the newspapers and the New York Times played it prominently. And you'd expect this, of course, to be in the health section or the science section. Uh, but no, it's in business day. Um, that tells us where we're at, okay? And again, much more recently, just uh, last week, there was another article in the New York Times about new replacement device that was unapproved yet used in surgery. Companies that make devices get to say to the FDA, ours is just a Me Too device and it doesn't need any approval, or it can cause some real harm, or it can be life-threatening. There's class one, two, and three, and the company gets to choose which class it is. So OSCE, uh, uh, Otis, rather, Otis decided that they had a class one. They didn't have to go through the FDA. Well, until people started having horrible knee replacement problems and the FDA got wind of it and said, uh, no, this is a class three device and you shouldn't have done this. So, of course, again, this should have been front page news, but it's in the business section. So this is a business we're talking about. And if you don't think that, think again, because this is a huge issue. So in 07, JAMA had quite the commentary on the commercial domination of therapeutics. And I hate to just read PowerPoint slides, but this is a little wordy, so I will. A few of these drugs have a distinct value and are worthy of recognition. The vast majority, however, are but the simplest of mixtures or are well-known drugs put out under fanciful names with no advantage whatever. The so-called Me Too drugs, okay? And then, but worse than the increase in number is the development of the advertising literature of unblushing falsehood and palpable deception. I love that. <laughs> unblushing falsehood and palpable deception. And it went on to say, there seems to be no statement too silly or falsehood too brazen for those who write the advertising literature that physicians are asked to read and to believe. This commercialized material has blighted our literature by debauching our medical journals. And again, that's in 07. What I didn't tell you is, is 1907. <laughs> this is not a new problem. This has been going on for a long time, okay? But a century later, some people who are pretty prominent came out with books on the take, how, medicine, how medicine's complicity with big business can endanger your health, the truth about drug companies and how they deceive us and what to do about it, and the trouble with medical journals, again, where the medical journals are being used complicitly with the drug companies. And you know, these are former editors of major journals. This isn't Jenny McCarthy writing a blog about uh, vaccines. This is, this is people who know what they're doing. But what really got my attention, really got me going on this, was this book by Peter Gotsky, and I've got a copy of it here. It's pictured right there who's the head of the Cochrane, uh, Nordic Cochrane Center, this book is a screed and a polemic against 
pharma. It's essentially saying pharma is organized crime. And I don't know if you can read the cartoon there, but one biker saying to the other, I don't like him, Gotsky, saying that the drug industry is similar to the mob. And the other guy says, why not? And the first guy says, we're not that bad. They kill many more people than we do. Um, and you know, this book is a screed and a polemic. And I want to say drugs are good. We have them. We use them all the time. They're important. I'm not going to be quite as negative as he is. But as I started reading this book and chasing down what he was saying and going through the literature, there's a lot of badness out there. And there's probably three or four hours worth of grand rounds, and I'm probably going to be cramming stuff in towards the end of this, because there is just so much to talk about. And I want to give you an overview um, of a number of different things. Um, so why should we care? First of all, just because it's the right thing. We're doctors, and we should care. But remember, our patients are the most vulnerable. We don't have a lot of drugs that are studied well in kids. So we have to be very careful about what's being used in our patients. And we need to immunize ourselves against some of the bad behaviors of pharmaceutical companies. And we have to help educate our families. We're all about anticipatory guidance. We've got to tell our families what's going on so they don't get suckered in, um, as people have been through the, you know, the hundreds of years since that 1907 article I showed you. So I'm going to take a couple of minutes to go through these different categories as we go through. So, different behaviors that pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical companies have used over time to make their drugs look good. Manipulating study designs, misrepresenting study results. They call it reporting bias. I call it lying. I think that's a better word for it. How we got manip manipulated by drug companies. And those of you who haven't seen John Oliver's Last Week Tonight, I have a little clip. I hope we'll have some time at the end to show a minute of it. But it's 17 minutes of uh, talking about a screed about how we are manipulated by drug companies and their money. Um, how drug companies use medical journals to their advantage. Um, and direct-to-consumer marketing. I'm not going to spend any time on this because I think we all know a lot about this. But it always ends with ask your doctor. So, you know, Guys my age, low T, erectile dysfunction, whatever, you know, go ask your doctor. Well, you know, uh, you know, anyone has an ache or pain, use Lyrica, go ask your doctor. They're asking us, we can say no, okay? We don't have to say yes and write all the prescriptions. So in 2003, a couple of statisticians at um, um, McMaster University, in a kind of joke article in the British Medical Journal, wrote this uh, thing on how to design studies to get the answer you want. And they called it harlot, an amalgamation of the world's two oldest professions, how to achieve positive results without actually lying to overcome the truth. <laughs> and it was funny. It was, you know, the BMJ at Christmas time always does some humorous articles. Um, and this was one of them, except it's true. And what they went through in a humorous way were the different things that drug companies do to get the results they want. So one of them is sample size. If you want to not see side effects, make your study small. If side effects are rare and you have too few people in the study, you're not going to see bad side effects. Works pretty well. On the other hand, if your drug only makes a minor difference, but you want to see a statistical, statistically significant difference, make your study large. And my, I remember when Zopinex, Levalbutyrol came out, they trumpeted how it had lower heart rate than giving regular albuterol. And the study I saw had a large number of people, statistically significant difference. It was 120 heartbeats a minute versus 110. That's not clinically significant. It was statistically significant. But 
you know. So they can manipulate. Study follow-up, Vioxx, remember lots of problems with these COX-2 inhibitors and heart attacks. They closed their study window at X number of months after the study started. And when the deaths occurred afterwards, they said, hey, we had already closed our database. We couldn't include all those deaths. You know, so how you manipulate your study really affects the outcome you get. Using surrogate endpoints, you know, if you use the wrong endpoint, you can get any result you want. Um, and even if you use a good endpoint, but it's not really the one that matters the most. Blood pressure drugs, antihypertensive drugs, great. You can measure blood pressure, but what matters are strokes. So, you know, let's look at the right endpoint. Avandia, uh, rosiglitazone, um, the diabetes drug for type 2 diabetes, they used what seemed like a really good endpoint, blood sugar. That seems to make a lot of sense. But why do we measure blood sugar and care about that? Because we're worried about microvascular and macrovascular disease and heart attacks. What did rosiglitazone do? It caused heart attacks. But that wasn't the endpoint they used. So it took, and by the way, they hid that data. They knew they were causing heart attack deaths. They called it proprietary information and did not let the FDA release that information, even though the FDA knew that. It took 10 years and a lawsuit before that data came out and rosiglitazone was taken off the market. The drug company knew what they were doing and did it anyway. Okay? Um, and I realize I'm sounding like a polemic too, but unfortunately this stuff's out there. It really is scary. Picking incorrect comparators. So they always say, oh, we had to go against the placebo. But with Me Too drugs, you don't have to go against the placebo. The FDA wouldn't mind if you compared yourself to an active drug. But then you run the risk of not being better than that comparator. And you don't want to do that if you're the drug company. And the other thing is to pick the wrong dose of your comparator. So if you're going to have an active comparator and you want your drug to look better, use a full dose of your drug and a low end of the spectrum dose of the other drug. You can manipulate these studies, OK? Or you use too high a dose of the comparator so you get more side effects from the comparator and your drug looks more attractive. And one of the, you know, again, selective publication will be talking about that, that's hiding negative data. If you're a basic science researcher and you do a study in your lab and half the animals have the result you don't like, don't fit your hypothesis, you can't just throw out that data. If you hid that data and threw it out, that's academic fraud. You'd be out on your ear in a minute. But drug companies, if they get study results they don't like, just don't publish them. They only publish the positive studies. And you're left not knowing that there were four negative studies that never made the, and we don't know that. I mean, we're in a terrible position because we don't know what we don't know. Um, and finally, study acronyms. That's a great one. There, is a there have been studies out there called CURE and MIRACLE and HEALTH. You know, if you want to recruit subjects to a study, why not call it CURE? Who's not going to sign up for a study that's called CURE? Uh, you know, it's ridiculous. When I was chair of the IRB at UMass, we wouldn't allow those acronyms on uh, consent forms because we thought they were too biased and would make it too big a difference. I don't know what uh, happens here at Dartmouth because I haven't been through that process yet here. So just to show you study design, here's a, a great, so that was in 2003. In 2006, these uh, Harry's et al. published an article where the title really says it all. Why olanzapine beats risperidone, risperidone beats quetiapine, and quetiapine beats olanzapine. A is greater than B, B is greater than C, C is greater than A. <laughs> uh, not exactly math that I know. Turns out that 90% of the, of the uh, studies that were sponsored by the manufacturer favored the sponsor's drug. Amazing. 
What a shock. And the results are all contradictory based on the sponsorship. You know, again, study design makes a difference. So when you're reading these journal articles, be a little skeptical. Who sponsored it? How was it designed? What were the results? I think uh, what they did is I learned from Dilbert here. I didn't have any accurate numbers, so I just made this one up. Studies have shown that accurate numbers aren't any more useful than the ones you make up. And there's someone from the audience. How many studies showed that? 87, you know? <laughs> That's what these drug companies are doing. Let's make it up and we'll get the answer we want. So coming to some pediatric stuff, and this is, I, I'm using, I want to give some general examples that are a little scary actually, but uh, this was, uh, and it takes years for some of the badness to get known, by the way. It doesn't just, you know, happen. So this is a 2001 study that GlaxoSmithKline put out uh, saying that Paxil or paroxetine was, quote, generally well tolerated and effective for major depression in adolescence. That's how the abstract ended. Also in the discussion was most adverse events were not serious. And GlaxoSmithKline sent out to its sales force this memo, and the caps are theirs, not mine. Remarkable efficacy and safety. Now this study was cited many, many times and became hugely profitable for GlaxoSmithKline. And just because the study number 329 is used in later slides, that's what it was known internally as study 329. It had actually been rejected by other journals before it got published because of concerns that safety information wasn't readily available. So the original protocol had two primary outcomes and six secondary outcomes. You know, that's, you make, put up enough targets on the wall and shoot a gun at it, you're going to hit one of the targets. So that's one thing uh, they did. And suicidal thoughts and actions were hidden under the term emotional lability in the publication. Um, and I've looked at this publication. There is a table that says emotional lability, and there's more in the Paxil group than in the placebo group. But you have to really dig through the results section. And parenthetically, there's a little comment that emotional lability meant suicidal ideation and self-harm. But it's certainly not up front. You can find it. I'll give them credit. It's in there. But you've got to dig for it. But what happened is that there were incidents of self-harm and suicidality. And in 2004, the Attorney General of New York sued GlaxoSmithKline for consumer fraud. And that opened the vault. That meant the lawyers and the paralegals went to work on all the documents, thousands of pages of documents about Paxil. And what they found was that the original analysis didn't show any positive results for those eight endpoints they had. So they analyzed 19 other endpoints. Study 329 was found to be positive on four of the 27 outcomes. So four of the eight negative outcome measures in the protocol were replaced with the four positive ones. Okay. They found not only those cases of emotional ability that were rated serious, but they found three more that hadn't even been included in, the, in any of the publications. So it turns out that eight children in the Paxil group had self-harm or suicidal ideation versus one in the placebo group. Okay, And if you want to scare yourself, you can go look up stuff in the Eternal Journal, International Journal of Risk and Safety in Medicine. That's a scary journal. You really don't want to read that one because you won't want to do anything again. So the real results, not what was published, the real results was that there was no significant difference between Paxil and placebo on the original two primary endpoints or six secondary endpoints. There was a significantly higher rate of SAEs in the Paxil group. But an internal document said it would be commercially unacceptable to include a statement that efficacy had not been demonstrated as this would undermine the profile of paroxetine. Okay, this is what the internal people are saying. 
So the Paxil story, study 329, was negative for efficacy and positive for harm. And I don't know that you can read it here, but this is from the journal. The conclusion says, the findings of the study provide evidence of the efficacy and safety of the SSRI paroxetine for the treatment of teenagers, adolescents with depression. They knew, but they didn't tell us. To me, that's some bitter medicine and a little bit of a hard pill to swallow. So Gatsky, the author of this book, The Screed, says drug companies don't sell drugs, they sell lies about drugs. Um, unfortunately, I think there's a lot of truth to that. It's not, again, I'm being pretty negative here, but I think we have to have a sense of what's going on. Um, another great ploy they use is off-label promotion. So Neurontin was approved as a seizure medication, but it got sold Sales reps come into the offices. Gee, doctor, it's good for seizures. That's what's approved for. You know, some of your colleagues have found it works for pain, too. It works for sleep, you know, sleep problems. It works for this or that, or that. So Pfizer did get fined $430 million for that. And that's a lot of money, and that should teach them a lesson. Except that they made $2.7 billion in 2003 alone, 90% for off-label indications. Getting fined is just part of their expense and their balance sheet. It's up there with advertising. It's up there with R&D. OK, we're going to take a $430 million hit, but we're going to make $2.7 billion. So let's just go ahead and do it. It's just part of their, their, their mantra, their ethos. So if we're going to talk about ethics, I do have to use some, ethical, some terms from the ethics literature here. So moral hazard. In economics, this is all about socialized risk and privatized profits. So you talk about the, the banks that were doing subprime mortgages and, and credit default swaps and whatnot. You know, they made billions of dollars when the going was good, but when the going was bad, the taxpayers made up all, and the CEOs kept making all their, their, um, all their profits, all their, their salaries. So that's in economics, socialized risk, privatized profit. But this is going on here too, and in a broader definition, it's really an information imbalance when the party with more information takes advantage of the party with less information. And that's what's going on here. And to talk about selective publications again, and I'm picking a little bit on the psychiatry literature because unfortunately it's pretty rife with, uh, with problems. But here is a, from the New England Journal of Medicine in 2008, 74 FDA registered studies of antidepressants this group looked at. Of the published reports about these antidepressants, 94% of the published reports are positive, but only half of the studies were actually considered positive by the FDA analysis. So what happened to the half that weren't? They got buried. They didn't get published. So if you look at the FDA decision in this, in this uh, bar graph here, if the FDA decision was positive, and it was for 38 of the studies, 37 of those 38 got published. I'm not sure those surprised one didn't get published, but 37 of the 38 got published. But if you look at the ones that were questionable, only half got published, and this grayed out bar actually means it was published with conflicts with the FDA decision. So although the FDA had said it was negative or questionable, they published it as if it were a positive study. And of the ones the FDA said were really negative, only five of the 21, I'm sorry, only three of the 21 got published as it was, five got published with different findings, and 16 got buried. So 22 of the studies got buried. Those 22 studies, if you look at the number of patients involved, represented 3,300, 3,300 patients, a quarter of the patients who took part. They took part because they were altruistic. They wanted to 
see if these drugs worked. They wanted to help the drug companies. They wanted to help other people with depression. And their data never saw the light of day. Okay? That's breaking the social contract. When they don't tell us the truth, but when they also tell people, you're going to help us, and then they don't publish that data. Virtually every informed consent form that I've seen as a chair of an IRB has a line in it, something to the effect, you may not benefit from being in this trial, but information learned will help others with your disease. Well, that doesn't help. If, that doesn't happen if the information's buried and never gets out. Those 3,300 people signed a consent form that said something like that, I'm sure. Uh, and yet their information didn't go out there. And one of the major problems is that the study contracts that our institutions sign, be it Dartmouth or UMass or Harvard or anywhere else, give the sponsor control over publication. So the sponsor plays with the data, and they say whether or not this can get published. And any of you who have done these with sponsors find that you send it in, their lawyers have to look at it. It's not the scientists that are looking at it. It's their lawyers who are looking at it and then getting back to you about whether that can be published. That's an area where we have some control. And I think that's something we need to change. Those contracts can't be like that. Those contracts have got to say that we're going to have control. Clinical trials should be scientific endeavors. Rigorous science should put itself to the risk of being falsified. That's what science is about. We get it less wrong incrementally because we learn. But if we bury stuff, we don't know what happened. We don't know what went wrong. We can't get it more right. Okay? Basic scientists, this stuff is repeated all the time. In fact, if you're a basic scientist and you publish something and another lab independently can't confirm it, it's tossed out. But with drug companies, that doesn't happen. In fact, when the NIH tried to do a study of long-acting beta agonists, they went to Glaxo, our good friends from Paxil, and said, please give us Advair, the long, actually it was, it was the long-acting form of just a salmeterol, please give us a placebo and a regular salmeterol so we can put it in this study. Glaxo refused. The NIH ended up spending $900 million making placebos um, to try to um, overcome this problem and do the study, which they ended up doing. But that's taxpayer money because Glaxo didn't want to take a risk of having their drug not work well. So they were not willing to put themselves at risk. Again, we get to this moral hazard. They aren't willing to put themselves at risk. So another study to talk about a little bit, something we use a lot in pediatrics, is Tamiflu. And of course, the American Academy of Pediatrics has said this is, uh, you know, consistently found uh, that timely Tamiflu treatment can reduce the risk of complications. The CDC has said it should be used for people with high-risk medical conditions. World Health Organization lists Tamiflu as an essential medicine for adults and children, which is all reasonable based on the studies that were out there. But the FDA which had access to all the trial data and patient-level data, requires that the label for Tamiflu state that it is not, has not been shown to prevent bacterial infections. So the secondary infections we worry about, actually, it's not labeled for. Why the contradiction? Well, the contradiction is because the authoritative bodies did not have access to patient-level data that the FDA had. So Cochrane Review people are great, and they really dig at things. And they thought there was a, they smelled a rat here. And so they went after the data, and Roach, that makes Tamiflu, refused to give it to them. And they fought legal battles for close to five years. And I got to tell you, the British Medical Journal got very involved and really pushed this with editorials and whatnot. And eventually, they got patient-level data. 
And I've got to tell you, if you haven't seen it yet, last uh, spring the British Medical Journal did publish the new Cochrane Review, as well as uh, a great commentary by uh, Dr. Krumholtz from Yale um, on the effect of Tamiflu. Turns out they use lousy endpoints. There was not a good definition of pneumonia. Okay, there was not. This, most of the studies didn't let the people in the placebo group use ibuprofen. Well, if ibuprofen takes away your aches and pains and fever, why use Tamiflu? If it's you know it's going to be the same effect, but they didn't want the placebo people taking ibuprofen because then it would negate the advantage of Tamiflu. So what they found out is that Tamiflu does shorten symptoms by about a day, uh, but actually only 16 hours in healthy adults, a day in children, but there is no effect in children with asthma. That's our worrisome group. Well, for us, it's cystic fibrosis, but um, there was no evidence for decreased hospitalization or complications when you went to patient level data. And there was increased risk not previously highlighted of nausea, vomiting, headaches, renal issues, and psychiatric syndromes. And the cost of Tamiflu, I, I got this off the web. I've heard 130, maybe 170. Uh, but ibuprofen cost a whole lot less. Um, and of course, when the pandemic was being talked about a couple of years ago, billions of dollars were spent buying Tamiflu to stockpile for the influenza epidemic that was supposed to come along for a drug that probably doesn't do what it's supposed to do. Now, I want to take a little moment for disclaimer here. I'm not saying no one should ever get Tamiflu. There are some studies that show decreases shedding of the virus, and that may be very beneficial in terms of stopping spread. But it isn't the wonder drug that Roach wants you to think it is. And I think we have to be honest with ourselves, and we have to be honest with our families, that this drug may cause nausea, headaches, other problems, and not be that much better than using something like Tylenol or Advil. And so what's the downstream effect? Well, if they only publish great results, then we overestimate that, the benefits. We underestimate the harms. We do the systemic reviews and meta-analysis, and policymakers make decisions and clinical guidelines get published that are based on false data. And that comes down to patient care. So it's, there's a moral and social issue here. This is not just because, oh, they're making a little bit of money. Okay, so those of you who did, have people here seen the John Oliver's thing from this last week? No? Yes? No? A couple have. Okay. Well, he takes pharma to task. It's 17 minutes. I highly recommend it. If we've got a little time in the end, we'll show a little bit of a clip of it. Um, I highly, first of all, it's highly entertaining to begin with, but secondly, it's incredibly true, which is the sad part. So it's, it's funny and sad at the same time. Um, but this is part of their business plan. Let's buy physicians. And they do it in lots of ways. And I've got to tell you, it affects all of us. None of us are immune. If you're called a key opinion leader, your chest kind of goes, oh, I'm a key opinion leader. This is pretty good. And they call you and they ask you to be on advisory boards. And remember, I put up there that I was on an advisory board for Vertex, a scientific advisory board, because I'm a key opinion leader. You know, that's pretty cool. Um, and they pay people to give talks, and they say, Doc, you're busy. We know it. We'll give you a slide set. You just talk off of our slide set. It's okay. And they do this through educational companies, grants to educational companies, so it's not coming from Roach or Glaxo or Park Davis, whoever. It's coming through an independent educational group. But their slide set then is all, and I, I was given one one time about, I don't know, eight or 10 years ago, and I didn't use it. I actually said thanks, but no thanks. 
but it was a company that was making an anti-infective, an inhaled anti-infective. And their slide set on CF was all about infection. It didn't talk about gastrointestinal problems. It didn't talk about the genetics very much. It was all about infection. And it was, you know, independent and not, you know, but they wanted me to get the audience hyped about using anti-infectives. And I said, thanks, but no thanks. I'll use my own slide set. I never got invited to give a talk by that educational group again. I can't imagine why. Um, you know, if you don't stay on message, they don't want you. If you prescribe the drug a lot, then you get asked back a lot. And I saw a comment about one physician, a cardiologist, talking at a dinner meeting after the American Heart Association meetings, $100,000 for a quote, and I use quotes, educational lecture. We're in the wrong business in pediatrics, let me tell you, okay? Um, they do this, absolutely. Um, and, you know, it's funny, when I was reading this book and kind of preparing thoughts about this, I kept seeing, you know, when you're attuned to stuff, you start seeing things over and over again. Um, there was this great article in the New York Times, or sad article in the New York Times uh, last November, about this company, Insys, that makes a drug called Subsys. Subsys is a pain reliever. It's approved for oncologic pain, for people who have unremitting pain due to cancer. Um, interestingly, only about 1% of the prescriptions for this drug are written by oncologists. Um, it's been used for all kinds of other non-oncologic pain. Um, and the sunshine law that allows people to see what doctors are getting from companies only covered the last five months of 2013, but the New York Times went and looked at that. This company paid $2.8 million to physicians in that five-month period. <clears throat> what is commonly known as drug whores. Okay, but they didn't even get good drug whores. They got doctors with all kinds of problems. This doctor in Texas they paid $67,000 to, at the same time he's being investigated by the Board of Registry in Medicine for handing out pre-signed prescriptions for subsist to his staff. Okay, another doctor in Michigan who had gotten a lowly sum of only $56,000 was arrested for defrauding Medicaid and prescribing, prescribing subsist to patients who did not need it. Okay, and other high prescribing physicians from the, of subsist had their children, their adult children, hired to be drug reps <laughs> at very high salaries, by the way. Uh, it's, a, it's a scary article. So drug companies do this. This is their business. Let's get doctors to prescribe and we'll do whatever it takes to get them to prescribe because they make a lot of money. Well, that's nice because we're not getting sixty, seventy thousand dollars from Insys, and we're all nice people, and so we're not influenced. We all know that. <clears throat> B.S. There's a huge literature on uh, psychological in, in the psychology literature on gift giving, and I've read it all, and I'll so you don't have to. I've gone through it for. I've saved you that effort. I'll boil it down to one sentence: We are influenced by gifts. It doesn't matter if it's a person you don't like giving you a gift you don't want. You still feel beholden to them. So when that sales rep comes in and gives you a pen and a pad of sticky notes or whatever, you are feeling beholden to that person. Okay? And it's great to ramp it up. Oh, pen doesn't bother me. I'm not going to sell just because I get a pen. Well, the next time they bring cookies and pastries and a lunch, oh, that doesn't affect me. I'm above that. And then it's dinner, you know, something. And then it's your key opinion leader, and let's go give a talk, and we'll give you $3,000. Oh, I'm not influenced by that. Um, yes, you are. And they love it when you say you're not influenced by that, because though the people who don't realize they can be influenced are the ones who are most influenced. Absolutely. They love it when you say, I'm not influenced by that. Oh, a pen doesn't bother me. Um, and number two, I don't know how many residents are in here, but uh, they love to get us young. Uh, in order to influence physicians from the bottom up and solidify Park Davis's role in the resident's mind, 
Um, you know, I think Dartmouth is probably pretty good about keeping sales rep out and doing this free lunch stuff, but in private practice, that's not the case. There's a lot of people who are getting a lot of uh, free stuff from drug companies. And let me tell you, they are business. Remember I said at the beginning, the first question is, is it a business or is it a charitable operation? It's a business. They're watching what happens to their money. They get information about our prescribing habits. And if they didn't get something, some bang for their buck, they wouldn't spend money on sales reps and gifts if they didn't get something back. Data I saw said $10 profit for every $1 that they spend on a sales rep. It pays off. So don't say it doesn't influence me, because they wouldn't do it if it didn't influence us. They wouldn't spend that money if they didn't see a return on investment. Well, does that matter, really? Well, it matters for lots of reasons. Part of it is these key opinion leaders and the people who have not been influenced by these gifts end up being on panels that then recommend drug usage. So this from PLOS Medicine showed uh, that looking at uh, diagnostic guidelines for the first uh, decade or more of this uh, century, 16 publications with four, on 14 conditions, 10 widened the definition of disease. If you're a drug manufacturer, there's nothing better than having the definition of your disease widened. If you make statins and the cholesterol, anything above 220 is supposed to be treated with a statin, and then a guidelines committee comes along and says, oh, it should be 200, not 220, you've just increased your market share. You've got an incredible increase in market. And instead of making hundreds of millions of dollars, you're now making billions of dollars. So they love it. Among 14 panels with financial disclosures, 75% of the panel members had industry ties. 12 were chaired by people with ties. I can tell you, and I've read comments by some of these chairs, oh, I gave up my ties to the industry a year before I was the chair. I'm not influenced by that. I was really clean about this. Again, remember what I said about the other stuff. That's that's not true. It's just not true. And, and a simple analogy, if you were being sued for malpractice and you found out that nine of the 12 jurors and the judge were on the payroll of the plaintiff, would you feel that was a fair jury? I don't think so. So I don't think these, I think they can find experts who aren't getting money. You know, a good statistician and a good clinician can probably make as good a guideline decision as these, quote, key opinion leaders who have published the articles and taken the money. We don't have to have people who are taking money do, do the guidelines. Okay, to switch gears a little bit, because drug, you know, we have journals that protect us because there's peer review of all the articles and whatnot, so that's really very helpful. Except that, of course, that's not the case. Um, and one of those books that I showed you at the very beginning was about how medical journals have been uh, unfortunately taken over by, uh, uh, by the industry. So drug companies love to publish in high-impact journals. Um, if you have an article in the New England Journal of Medicine and that sales rep can come into your office and say, look, it's in the New England Journal of Medicine, they love that, okay? Also, they can then have their ghostwriters write over and over again about this, so it's just out there in the literature all over the place. Uh, so they love high-impact journals. But the high-impact journals love the drug companies, too, because how do you get to be high-impact? Your articles are cited over and get over again. If the Drug companies getting ghostwriters to cite the article over and over again, it makes your impact factor go up. So the editors of these high-impact journals love this. And I did not realize this, because the few times I've bought uh, reprints, and I think most of these days with PDFs and printing out, no one buys reprints of their own articles anymore. But you know, you buy 50, you buy 100 or something like that. It's 50 bucks, 100 bucks. Drug companies buy these reprints by the boatload. 
Okay, it makes money for the publisher. So um, most of the studies in the New England Journal of Medicine, in fact, are of the randomized controlled trials. It's RCTs, not RTCs. They're randomized controlled trials. Uh, only 20% didn't have sponsorship by <coughs> by industry. And as one example, Merck bought almost a million reprints of one of their Vioxx studies. That brought in $700,000, $800,000 for the New England Journal of Medicine, that one article, that one year. If you're the editor of the journal and you've got to decide about your budget, how are you going to have another associate editor or are you going to fire someone or get reprints, it's hard to ignore the money you can get from reprints. 41% of Lancet's income comes from reprints, and that's old data, but it's still the same. That hasn't changed dramatically over time. So these are influences on our journals that we weren't necessarily aware of. And again, a lot of verbiage here, but just to show you that, that uh, I'm not making this up and Gotsky, who wrote that book, isn't making it up. Our former editor of the British Medical Journal saying medical journals are an extension of the marketing arm of pharmaceutical companies. Mm -hmm. The Lancet saying journals have evolved into information laundering operations for the pharmaceutical industry. And Marsha Angel, former editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, saying it's simply no longer possible to believe much of the clinical research that is published. Okay. We can arm ourselves a little bit. If we know some of this as we go into reading these articles, you know, who's the sponsor, what were the endpoints, we can start to be a little more careful, critical readers, which I think we need to be. So it's important, but there's issues. There are issues. Uh, which raises an issue. Should journals stop publishing research funded by pharmaceutical companies? They don't publish stuff funded by the tobacco industry because the tobacco industry is in it for their own good. Hmm. Is there a big difference here? Um, prescription drugs account for many deaths, and it's because they've lied to us. You know, think of FenFen. The diet drug caused pulmonary hypertension and valve problems. Avandia, the rosiglitazone with all their problems. The SSRIs that I showed you about, Vioxx was a huge scandal. And it goes on and on and on because they've hidden data, not published data, kept it out of our view. Um, so, you know, is there a big difference between big tobacco and big pharma? And yes, there is. I realize that. But I think there's some, we've got to be careful about this. So. I've railed about this for the last, what, 45 minutes or so. Um, are medications inherently bad? And the answer is no, obviously. You know, I, I was saying to Keith earlier, I dislocated my elbow a couple of weeks ago, and I was really glad they had propofol for me when they relocated it, okay? Um, you know, my grandmother died of uh, pneumonia long before I was born because she was in his late 1930s. That, you know, she'd get a amoxicillin prescription today and, and never be sick. Um, you know, the cancer chemotherapy, you know, leukemia used to kill all the children. Now there's, what, 85 90% survival rate for pediatric leukemia. Drugs are good. Most of these, in fact, are coming from NIH-sponsored research, where the basic science research is funded by us, the taxpayers, okay? Um, and this is a social good that needs to be looked at. In my own world, you know, here's cystic fibrosis life expectancy uh, over the last uh, 80 years or so. And you can see the curve goes up because of drugs that have come out. So I'm not anti-drug, all right? But I am anti-moral hazard, and I am anti-being um, lied to. I don't like that very much. So I think we need to be cautious about things and what's going on. But it's not to say that every drug is horrible and every drug company is horrible. My interactions with the scientists at drug companies 
has been that they're ashamed of what their companies are doing. They're scientists who want to do the right thing, but it's the business people, the lawyers, that are kind of driving the behavior, unfortunately. And I mean, I, I, I don't know if that's totally true or not, but my experience, that's in my experience. So what do we need? We need full disclosure, okay? Um, and in fact, the FDA Amendments Act of 2007 called for more disclosure, and that's a good thing. Unfortunately, what we're getting is just summary data, and what we really need is subject-level data. Because that's, again, if you go back to the Paxil study that I showed you, if you go back to the Tamiflu stuff, it was the patient-level data that really brought out the truth. For the last, whatever, 10 or more years, clinicaltrials.gov has been reporting on clinical trials, and that's a great way to see what's really going on. Sponsors are supposed to re post, uh, sorry, supposed to post results within one year of the end of the trial. Unfortunately, that's not happening. So although there's a mandate to, there's no teeth to that law. So, you know, 30% of trials with no report within four years of completion. And this graph just came out in New England Journal just last week, looking at cumulative number of registered clinical trials with at least one U.S. site from October 2008 to September 2014. Completed clinical trials is the red line. The blue line, completed trials with posted results. Now remember, they're supposed to post within one year. They can get a two-year extension if they've got some other work in the pipeline to use that drug for some other indication. So if something came out in 2012, by 2014 it should have been posted. But what you can see is we've got a gap here that only about half of the studies that were completed in 2012 actually had results posted by 2014. And the authors of this paper go on to say that only about half of those results were actually published. So only a quarter of the studies that were done for more than two years actually had published reports. So the idea is great. We just aren't there yet because we don't have good teeth to this law. So is there hope? And I think there is. Uh, Keith and I were talking about this a little bit before. There actually is some movement in the right direction. Martin Luther King said it best, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Well, we're bending towards justice now. Um, just this past week, or two weeks ago maybe, it was in the uh, New England Journal, uh, there was a comment on the Health and Human Services now has a notice of proposed rulemaking for clinical trials registration and results submission. This has more teeth to it. This is better than what we've had so far. And this is breaking news. This is just coming out. There's a uh, uh, comment, to comment period right now that's open, so we can all make comments to HHS about this proposal. Um, and the EMA, the European Medical, uh, Medical Agency, has new regulations coming out for 2015. So this is really breaking news. So I actually spent the end of 2014 reading this stuff and digging through all this literature, and then at the beginning of 2015, all of a sudden, wow, it's actually all getting better, which is good. I mean, clearly other people have been reading these books and thinking about this too. Um, so these are just a list of some of the things that have come out uh, regarding changes that are going forward. And I'm not going to go into great detail about all of them. But here's a uh, thumbnail of the proposed changes to the FDA Amendment Act. They're going to ask drug companies to submit results of unapproved products as well as approved products. To date, it's only been the approved products where you've had to put results online. And the reasoning was that a company said, unapproved, stuff that fails, that's proprietary. We don't want our competition to be able to see what we did that didn't work and give them a leg up so they don't have to repeat our errors. But morally, that's wrong. You know, if it didn't work, why do you want another company, another group of research subjects to go through the same experiment all over again 
for a negative result. Yes, you may save your competitors some money by publishing it, but you're also saving lives and helping us move forward to the right answer, the correct answer, rather than the wrong answer. Um, so now, if this is approved, and again, this is still a proposal, it's not passed law yet, uh, they'll have to do uh, results of unapproved products as well. Getting back to that Paxil story, all pre-specified primary and secondary endpoints will have to be described at registration, so they can't play games with 19 other endpoints and substituting the ones that worked out. Again, they'll have to specify measurements like blood pressure, <clears throat> growth, whatever the issue is, and time frames of when the reports are being done. Include tables of anticipated and unanticipated adverse events. So again, these quote, emotional ability things have to be really out there and seen. And they've got to say who said they thought it was study-related or not. If the company, because the company said, well, those people died when they took rosiglitazone, but it really wasn't drug-related. There were other issues. Well, now it's going to say, was it the principal investigator who thought it was or was not study-related, or was it the company that said it was or was not study-related? So that's going to be helpful for us. And all-cause mortality tables, again, getting back to things like FenFen and Vioxx um, and Avandia, that they have to put in there all-cause mortality. So they can't say, well, you know, he died, but his blood sugar was perfect when he died, so it wasn't our problem. You know, uh, They can't do that. They won't be able to do that. So we are heading in the right direction. I mean, that's, that's a positive thing. And some journals are really tightening up. The British Medical Journal has been at the lead in this area, but part of it is they don't publish a lot of clinical trials, actually. Uh, they do a lot of more epidemiologic sort of stuff. But they are definitely, they're saying, if you're going to publish a trial in our journal, you have to make patient-level data available to people. Okay? Uh, GlaxoSmithKline, which did the Avandia problem and the Paxil problem, they aren't doing this because they've suddenly seen the light. They're doing this because they're under court order. But they are discontinuing speaker programs, and they've uncoupled the sales rep's salaries from the number of prescriptions written so that the sales rep doesn't have to say, you have to prescribe more of my drug, okay? So they've uncoupled that, which is definitely a step in the right direction. And Johnson & Johnson is giving their device study data to Yale University at a patient level, uh, at, at patient level to be able to be looked at in their um, epidemiology department so they can actually get a look at what's going on. So there are moves in the right direction. There's no question about that. Um, unfortunately, drug companies can still play with things. If they're going to put patient-level data out there for all the drugs, we're talking about tens of thousands of pages, hundreds of thousands of pages of data. Is anyone really going to sift through that? You can hide in there self-harm or whatever. And, you know, the Paxil story got out because there was a specific lawsuit. The Avandia story got out actually because of the Paxil lawsuit that Galaxo had to open up their books for other studies. But is anyone really going to go through all those pages of all those studies? Hide in plain sight, that's called. Okay. The other thing is they can redact stuff that is uh, a problem. So here's someone asked for 28 pages from the FDA. What they got was one page, half of which was redacted, and then a note saying that the rest of it has been redacted too. Um, so yeah, it's available. All you have to do is ask for it. You know, it's right there. Uh, and not so much necessarily. Um, so having said that. A couple of uh, I started with the 1907 quote. I'll go back to uh, the 19th century. Pliny says in so many words that the creats and cataclysms, plasters, choleria, I don't even know what all these are, and antidotes so abundant in his time as in more recent days were mere tricks to make money. Um, 
and it would be good for humankind and bad for the fish if all the drugs were thrown in the sea. Um, so <laughs> William Oster may have had it right, I'm not sure. Uh, but this, I like this too. In the light of his record of cures, Hood's sarsaparilla. So that's what we need to use. Um, and I will leave you for questions. Thank you. And I think we may have a couple minutes if uh, we'll set that up. Okay, good. That's questions. Whoa. Yes. Uh, two quick questions. One is uh, the role of journals yeah. complicit in this, in, not not in the devious sense, but mm. that people don't want to publish right. negative studies. Yep. So you alluded several times to the idea that they didn't publish these when the drug wasn't right. efficacious. However, most journals are not yeah. interested in publishing right. negative studies. The second one, let me, let yeah. me get out and then. Uh, you can answer that, uh, is the role of reviewers. Can yeah. reviewers insist on seeing the so um, again, the drug companies are not. I'll answer the second question. The drug companies are not at this point going to give patient-level data to a reviewer. They're only going to give summary data. Okay, that's an issue. And that's just, and they're going to say it's proprietary. We don't do that. Here's our data. Uh, in terms of the first one, um, you're absolutely right. There actually is a study um, that was done looking at why negative trials weren't published. And actually, the major culprit were the investigators who said, well, it was negative. It's not worth it. I moved on to something else. I'd never followed up on it. Um, journals have generally not published negative studies. I actually had a little email back and forth with the editorial board at the New England Journal of Medicine about this thing. And they claim they're more willing to publish negative studies. And they gave some numbers about the number of negative trials they've published recently. So there is a little move in that direction, but you're right. It's, that's a problem that is perhaps not completely drug company related, absolutely. So we need to get over that too. In CF care, there was a study done in 2004 of an anti-inflammatory drug, a leukotriene B4 receptor antagonist. Keep the white blood cells out of the lung. Inflammation's bad for the lung. Turned out that, in fact, the placebo, the, the treatment group had more serious illnesses than the placebo group because you need some white blood cells there. We are over taking out the white blood cells. That study was stopped because of negative findings partway through. It took 10 years before that got published in the Journal of Cystic Fibrosis, not exactly a top journal, um, in 2014. Um, and so negative trials can get published, but sometimes there's a huge lag because the people who are involved had many other things they moved on to. So it, it is an issue. Do these, journal, do these studies, I know that NIH studies and other non-industry studies have uh, data safety monitoring yeah. boards. Do these yes, they absolutely have DSMBs. Um, Again, they do get patient-level stuff. It's generally done through the sponsor, and then what gets out into the real world, again, is held. You know, there's contracts that say you can't disclose this. This is proprietary information. Death can be a proprietary information in some of these drugs. Some of these companies, the Avandia one in particular, again, I, I'm picking on a couple of these, but there's some, unfortunately, there, there's examples of a larger problem, but they, yeah. Yes. Thank you for that horrifying talk. Yes. <laughs> yeah. um, I was wondering if you can comment. Obviously, those of us in pediatrics, which is everybody yeah. in this room, get the extra challenge, not just yep. what you said, but nobody wants to spend money on our kids. Yep. Our kids are small. They don't at Vioxx, like yeah. Yeah. erectile dysfunction. We don't have <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. right. Um, so is there hope for us in pediatrics because <sighs> our drugs are off-label? Yeah, no. It's, it, and, um, 
Bottom line is no. Okay. Um, I think, but as I said in one of the slides, I think it just means we have to be extra cautious. You know, and, and the other thing is we don't know what we don't know. Donald Rumsfeld's famous statement of the known knowns and the unknown unknowns. We're dealing with unknown unknowns. We don't know what we don't know right now. Okay? So I think what's, what behooves us is to not be too generous with drugs. So a new drug comes out and, you know, it says it's wonderfully safe for adolescents with depression. Well, let's not just give every kid who's a little sad that drug. Let's be a little judicious about how we use our drugs. Um, and I think we have to be a little bit careful. Not everybody has to have Tamiflu. Not everybody has to have Paxil. Not everybody has to have the newest ADHD drug. I think we have to be a little bit cautious because you're right. We don't know. And we don't even know what we don't know. And that makes it really hard. So I'm going to put a plug in um, <clears throat> on this line of reasoning in terms of the corporate influence in medicine and science. I will preview. It's, a, it's on that. Yeah. Uh, Jim Sargent has a perspectives piece coming out in pediatrics in March that uh, addresses this in the context of his own alcohol research. So uh, this is a timely topic and uh, important. Here we go. Oops, I'm back up just a touch. So this is the John Oliver piece, and it's humorous anyway. So um, this is, to, I'm going to back up just a touch more. This is just the last couple of minutes of it. A drug company, which is probably fine, or maybe as ProPublica did, when they looked at pharma payments, you'll find a doctor who's earned more than a million dollars delivering promotional talks and consulting. Or maybe, like we did, you'll find a doctor who got food and beverages one day worth four cents. Four cents. I have to know what that meal was. Because the only way a four cent meal makes sense is if that doctor is a mouse. That's the only way it the point is, there is information on this database you should know. And this should really be just the beginning. If drug companies really want to regain our trust, maybe they should let us know the effect that their money has on doctors in the only way they know how. Have you noticed anything strange about your doctor? Does he seem happier than usual these days? He's supposed to prescribe drugs you think you might not need. You know what? One more, actually. Does his waiting room frequently feature surprisingly attractive, not sick-looking people? The drug reps. That may be because your doctor's been taking pharmaceutical money. Pharmaceutical money takes many forms, from free lunches to speaking fees. Here's how it works. Money combines with the cash receptors in your doctor's wallet to create fast-acting financial relief. So your doctor can rest easy and enjoy life. Common side effects of doctors taking money may include chronic overprescription, unusually heavy cash flow, dependency on free samples, inflammation of confidence, affluenza, and an increased tendency to suggest off-label prescriptions, which in turn can cause heart attack, stroke, loss of feeling in arms and legs, seizures, blurred vision, grinding of the teeth, temporary deafness, total blindness, numbness, sudden bursts of rage, reduction of trust, angry erections lasting over 17 hours, and death. Ask your doctor today if he's taking pharmaceutical company money then ask your doctor what the money is for. Ask your doctor if he's taken any money from the companies who make the drugs he just prescribed for you. Then ask yourself if you're satisfied with that answer. Pharmaceutical money. Ask your doctor if his taking it is right for you. 
Uh, unfortunately, humor, but a little too true. All right, thank you. I know it's not exactly. Please tell about you too.